好，这里是正在为您。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. If we think of the Chinese engagement on the African continent, terms like infrastructure construction or resource extraction come to mind. In the West, the Chinese state is often characterized as a neo-colonial power exploiting its weaker African counterparts. Looking at China-Africa relations in the field of technology, however, helps to broaden this picture and gives a more nuanced insight into their relations. I am Johannes Heller, and to talk about this issue, I'm joined by Tom Base, a China-Africa researcher and former visiting academic fellow at Merricks. Hi, Tom. Hi, Johannes. Great to be here.、Uh, so, Tom, what are we talking about when we talk about China's role in technology in Africa? Well, we're talking about quite a broad and growing range of different activities. So, we're talking about building telecommunications infrastructure. We're talking about Producing and providing consumer electronics. We're talking about、uh, developing new apps and、uh, technological solutions to relevant problems.、Um, and across all of these different activities, you're seeing a growing Chinese role within African markets. And some of that you could say is a natural response to China's own technological developments. But also, it's interesting to see that there's a there's a definite push from the Chinese side to to grow their role. So, why is China interested in the African market for technology? Well, first and foremost, I think it's about money. So, put simply, there's money to be made.、Um, Africa is a very large market. It's in fact the second biggest market worldwide after Asia in terms of individual consumers. So, we're talking about a continent that already has well over a billion people and is due to grow to just shy of two billion later in the century. So, it's a very large market in simple terms. Within that, you've got,、uh, at least in some parts of the continent,、uh, growing middle classes with much more spending power than than previously the case. And also, quite interestingly, we're we're talking in terms of the de- demographics across Africa. You're talking 41% of the population below the age of 15, and then a further 19% between the ages of 15 and 24. And these are obviously、uh, generations that are well placed to. Uh, seize the opportunities of these different technological developments, but beyond the simple question of making making money,、uh, I think it's interesting to bear in mind the political side of this. So clearly, the relations and interactions with Africa and African countries are very important to Beijing for a number of reasons, and by participating and、uh, pushing a strong role in Africa's tech sector. Uh, this just adds another dimension to that relationship, and in many ways a positive dimension. So it offers Beijing a, a positive story to tell about what China does in Africa. And quite an interesting additional point, and an additional motivation is technological. So、uh, by expanding their role in tech in the tech sector in Africa, Chinese companies get access to data, which obviously can be highly valuable in in developing new technologies. And also, there's a there's the perspective of of Uh, how China can grow its influence technologically by conquering significant market share in African markets. How does this Chinese engagement relate to the country's global aims? 
like technological leadership yeah i mean so there's definitely a a connection there Um, as we've seen in the last few years beijing is is very consciously pursuing a greater role worldwide technologically so obviously xi jinping a couple of years ago saying that he wanted china to be a digital superpower and there's the recent uh, merrick's publication on this topic which has really set out uh, very well very clearly the extent of uh, china's ambition in in this domain and africa is an important part of that uh, part of that is just the size of africa the you know the number of countries involved the number of consumers involved so there's a sense in which um having strong influence in africa translates to having strong influence worldwide overall there's also an element to that where it's an opportunity for china to continue to demonstrate and develop its its leadership of the developing world which is a leadership it continues to claim uh, and therefore it's another angle in which influence over africa can be translated into influence worldwide Seen from Europe or from the West, we often think that it's only the Chinese state that's like having its master plan and implementing it uh, in Africa or all around the world. Um, is that true in that way? Is it only the Chinese state being active? The Chinese state is certainly active and within the tech sector that includes some, some big well-known names like ZTE, a state-owned firm. Uh, which is is active in Africa. But like many other sectors within the the China-Africa commercial relationship, there is a big and growing role for the private sector. So some of the most influential companies in this sector coming from China to Africa are private companies driven principally by profit motive. But obviously with it's it's a sort of a a blurred line in the sense that uh, the Chinese state very much takes an interest in the activities of those companies and clearly has been active in recent decades in supporting those companies in their efforts in Africa. So a very prominent example is, of course, Huawei, which in Africa, as in a number of other regions, has benefited from Chinese diplomatic support, but also very tangibly um, export credits and loans from China's policy banks. So it's it's a mixture of both state and private sector with the state continuing to play an important role. Let's go a little bit more into detail. The Chinese mobile phone manufacturer Transgen is a major player in Africa. The company that I frankly never heard of before has a market share of over 35% for smartphones and over 50% for feature phones in Africa. Feature phones are these Phones that are not solely for calling, uh, but not yet really smartphones. Its smartphone share is surpassing Apple, Samsung, and Nokia. What has its strategy been on the continent? Yeah, and Transion is a really striking, interesting case, uh, well worth looking at. And I think you can be certainly be forgiven for having not heard of them. Their products aren't available here in Germany, but equally, they're not on sale in China. And even in Africa, actually, Transion as a name probably wouldn't be that familiar because, in fact, they sell their products under a range of different uh, brand names, the most important being Techno, Itel, and Infinix. Um, And then in terms of what their strategy has been, what's interesting about them is that they've never sought to sell their products on the Chinese market. Pretty much from the company's inception in 2006, they've very deliberately and consciously and successfully targeted African markets. Their motto is think globally, act locally. 
and I think I think this is a fair reflection of what they've done. They've very carefully tailored their products to African markets. So in the first instance, that means uh, very competitive pricing. So we're talking phones, handsets starting from about ten US dollars. We're talking smartphones for under one hundred US dollars. So this is extremely competitive with the likes of Apple and Samsung. But it's not just about price, it's also about specs, it's about how they've um, developed their products to suit and appeal to African consumers. So uh, some of the key elements are, for example, dual SIM capability. The overwhelming majority of African consumers will have at least two different SIM cards with two different subscriptions, and this is because of quite patchy network coverage and very high charges when you're calling between networks. So Transion introduced dual SIM capability for their handsets so that you didn't have to constantly be switching around between your SIM cards. Another thing is how they've focused heavily on ensuring long battery life, for example, using low power chipsets. And this, again, is is tailored to the often quite poor electricity infrastructure in many parts of Africa, where it's difficult and costly to to charge up a phone. And then one of the most striking things about it is the way they've optimized the um, software in their cameras to be much more effective at taking photographs of people with darker complexions, which suits obviously the African market very well. They've been very successful, as, as you said, they've conquered a significant market share. And following that, they've been manufacturing in Ethiopia since I think about 2011. So they've got a manufacturing site in Ethiopia where they employ about 2000 people, mostly Ethiopians. So this is a true success story. Yeah, I think it, it definitely seems fair to say this is very much in the positive side of China's role in the African tech sector. In Europe, we have an ongoing debate about the involvement of Chinese telecommunications companies in the development of fifth generation mobile network infrastructure, 5G. How involved are Chinese players in the development of telecommunication infrastructure in Africa, be it 5G, 4G or below? Yeah, they're, they're really deeply involved. So Huawei and ZT are, again, the, the main uh, characters there. And this is, I suppose, it's the origin of China's role in, in the African tech sector. So Huawei, for example, entered African markets in 1999 and was this was in the context of China's going out strategy. And since then, they've been hugely successful in securing market share and very profitable market share in Africa. So we're talking about 70% of 4G networks in Africa constructed by Huawei alone. And then beyond sort of 4G, 5G um, networks, there's also fiber optic cables being built at the moment. Huawei is working on the the so-called PEACE fiber optic cable. PEACE here standing for Pakistan and East Africa connecting Europe. So as the name suggests, it's a submarine fiber optic cable uh, from Pakistan under the Indian Ocean to East Africa. And this again, I think, points again in the direction of the state's role. So this uh, this particular project and many other of these infrastructure-related projects are supported by the Chinese government through export credits and loans, and also a part of this digital Silk Road, so the, the digital element of the well-known Belt and Road Initiative. China has not only built infrastructure, uh, like telecommunication lines, but also generously gifted to the African Union its headquarters building. It was reported, however, that internal data has been secretly redirected to Chinese service. Has this led to trust issues for Chinese telecommunications companies in Africa? 
Yeah, I mean, that story with the African Union headquarters really did uh, capture lots of headlines. Maybe some of the listeners have come across this story, but it's worth just recapping. So that African Union Commission headquarters building in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia was entirely funded and constructed by China to the tune of 200 million US dollars and was a big symbol of China's commitment to Africa. But then, as you say, last year, in January 2018, the French newspaper Le Monde uh, published an investigation where they revealed that for the five years from 2012, when the uh, headquarters was opened up until um, 2017, during the night, from midnight to 2am, the data from all of the data servers in um, the headquarters building were being secretly transferred across the world to um, servers in Shanghai, which, as I say, certainly captured a lot of attention and negative attention. And, and of course, the, I should say, I suppose that the Chinese government denied these accusations. But nonetheless, as, as you suggest, there were real trust issues provoked. So the African Union itself moved quite swiftly to end some of the arrangements that they had in place. Again, this was Huawei that was uh, the company responsible. And so they quite rapidly uh, put out tenders for new servers and new data infrastructure, new data center with non-Chinese suppliers. So yes, at the African Union level, it seems to have uh, undermined trust. But then when we look across the continent more broadly, it doesn't seem to have... Um, been terminal for China's tech companies. They've continued, you know, Huawei and ZTE to be producing quite often quite sensitive data infrastructure, you know, government data centers for many governments, and then also a, a strikingly similar setup to the AU project. China is currently funding and building a new headquarters for ECOWAS, the, the economic community of West African states. So it seems that the, the risk maybe was has been recognized but nonetheless uh, many african countries are happy to press ahead or i suppose maybe it just brings us to the crux of the issue of economic advantage of um, using some of these chinese suppliers perhaps outweighing the the risks or the potential risks of taking them on board so damned if you do damned if you don't perhaps yeah <laughs> This is Merrick's Experts. You are listening to my conversation with Tom Bass, China-Africa researcher and former Merrick's academic fellow. We're talking about China's impact on the African tech sector. China has embraced mobile payments and daily interactions. As vendors in bigger cities have started to solely accept mobile payments, China's central bank issued a warning in last December that rejecting cash was illegal and would erode confidence in physical money. Mobile payment providers like Ant Financial and WeChat are entering the African market as well. What impact is this going to have on the African market, you think? Well, hard physical cash is still king across Africa, so there's no immediate danger of any African governments having to put out that kind of warning that you've, you've just referred to there. In terms of looking at why cash is still so dominant, very much part of the the reason is the the high proportion of African citizens who remain unbanked. So um, less than 30% of African citizens have bank accounts. Only about 10% have credit debit cards. So there just isn't really the, the, the use or the infrastructure for these electronic payment methods. And a major reason for that is just the cost of traditional banking infrastructure. The result of this, the implication of this, is that um, mobile banking, mobile-based payment methods 
there's a real gap for them to step into a real opportunity for them to fill because clearly they can push down the costs associated with establishing banking infrastructure and Evidently, this can be highly useful for day-to-day transactions um, in shops, in marketplaces, but it's also potentially very beneficial for trade over longer distances or remittances and other payments and transfers. So taken broadly, successful implementation of some of these mobile banking and mobile payments technologies offer a real potential development boon for for different African economies. So that's why there's been so much interest in the last few years in mobile payments, mobile banking in Africa. And in this, it's not just Chinese players. Chinese players are certainly not the first companies to take an interest in this sector. But they're definitely moving quickly to catch up and to join in. So some of this is that they're partnering with local institutions, financial institutions, or partnering with local companies. So the most commonly cited example is Kenya's M-Pesa, which is a a mobile payments uh, platform. And there they've partnered with Huawei, and it's Huawei that provides the mobile money service platform for them. But also looking at some of the other partnerships that have been announced just in the last few months. For example, Kenya's Equity Bank, Uh, has been rolling out usage of WeChat Pay and Alipay initially in Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania and Rwanda, but now also moving to to the DRC and other African markets. And I think an interesting dimension to all of this is that, yes, on the one hand, these mobile payments, mobile banking opportunities offer uh, scope for developments domestically within different African markets. It's also interesting to see what this what impact this will have in the in the future on trade between Africa, between African countries and China, uh, especially regarding smaller producers, smaller medium-sized enterprises. And so an interesting development has been Jack Ma of Alibaba fame, his interest in Rwanda in particular. So uh, late last year, Paul Kagame, president of Rwanda, signed Rwanda up as the first African country to participate in Jack Ma's EWTP, the E-World Trade Platform. And this is, amongst other things, aimed at facilitating those sorts of that sort of trade between different countries, especially for uh, smaller medium enterprises, particularly for companies in different African countries trading with uh, Chinese consumers. So we've already seen uh, successful use of this by Rwandan coffee producers selling directly as a small producer to the Chinese market. So it will be interesting to follow this in the coming years to see how, how those different trends interact both within these countries, but also between China and Africa and play into that larger China-Africa relationship. The digital services that we talked about now were mostly financial or uh, economic. Are there other digital services that Chinese companies are offering in Africa to customers? Yeah, this is something that um, they're definitely taking an interest in. There's a very, in some countries in particular across Africa, there's a very active um, startup scene uh, where they're exploring different opportunities for using mobile technologies to answer some of the day-to-day problems and challenges that African citizens might have. And Chinese companies are participating in this in different ways. So again, to to refer to Jack Ma, he has recently uh, instituted a a sort of a startup prize uh, encouraging this kind of innovation by African innovators um, to be trained and funded by Jack Ma's companies. 
going beyond services for people, uh, Chinese companies are also providing cutting-edge technology to governments, including also autocratic regimes. The Guangzhou-based startup Cloudwalk, for example, won a contract with the Zimbabwean government in March 2018 to provide AI-enabled facial recognition surveillance technologies. What impact could Chinese surveillance technology have on the African continent, or can we already see impacts? Yeah, so that con- the announcement of that contract with Cloudwalk last year definitely captured a lot of attention as well. The uh, contract was to provide AI facial recognition technology for security purposes to the Zimbabwean government. Obviously, the political situation in Zimbabwe is in flux after the ouster of Robert Mugabe across Africa. That's one of the governments uh, most receptive to these more autocratic measures. So that caused concern both internationally and uh, within Zimbabwe, Zimbabwean citizens and media expressing concern about the implications of this. And certainly there is this concern about the uh, role of Chinese companies and the technologies that they're providing on political developments throughout the continent. So this is particularly the case in countries where there are already governments in place that are actively seeking some of these technologies. So uh, particular examples would include Ethiopia, a country that's had a long period of of one-party rule and quite oppressive one-party rule. And there we can see Chinese companies enabling uh, some of that, some of those methods by providing technology to enhance the autocratic capabilities of some of those governments. I can see clearly that the regimes they are profiting from receiving this technology. How do the Chinese companies involved stand to benefit from these transactions beyond just receiving money? Yeah, so sticking with that uh, Cloudwalk case, that was one of the aspects of the, the story that captured interest both internationally and within Zimbabwe. This was the advantage gained by Cloudwalk of providing this service and in return gaining access to a significant new data set. And why is it significant? Part of that is because many of the existing facial recognition algorithms are trained on white or East Asian ethnic faces and therefore Uh, the access to a different ethnicity um, is highly valuable in training and developing these algorithms further and could be seen to give particular companies or indeed Chinese companies more broadly a significant advantage in that sector. Does the increasing relationship on the technological level between China and African states suggest that they also, China that is, uh, try to transport their own ideas of uh, government control of of a state system, um, that they try to transfer this to African states, like an export of their system? Well, I think it's pretty clear that Beijing is is keen to export its, its model broadly in terms of how it understands the internet, but also how the government can use the internet and related technologies to strengthen its its power. And this is something that was pointed to last year in a report by Freedom House, looking into relative freedom of the internet. And in that report, they pointed to all the um, activities uh, driven by the Chinese government, training officials from Africa, but also from other countries, of course, bringing these officials to China and giving them uh, training in what the Chinese side would refer to as information management, so some of the uh, more censorship-related processes that we're used to seeing in China and that they seem to want to export in Africa. 
and I think it's, it's clear that there are some African governments, as I suggested a minute ago, that are highly receptive to to these processes and technologies. So just taking one example from last year, the communications minister in Tanzania was praising Chinese control of social media and how the Chinese, by blocking Facebook and Twitter, have ensured that the... Um, homegrown safe companies are able to control the dominate the Chinese social media uh, sector and that was followed not long after by Tanzania introducing its own uh, new internet regulations which were highly restrictive and forced a number of critical websites websites that have been critical of the government in Tanzania forced them offline by uh, imposing very heavy fines or looking in other countries Uganda President Museveni introduced new um, social media laws and a social media tax. And in Museveni's words, the aim was to end gossip. Uh, so certainly moving into in that more information control direction that we're familiar with from China. So while those examples point to uh, new legislation and new efforts to control information by certain African governments, the fact of the matter is that no African government to date has the technological capability to to match and recreate the Great Firewall uh, from China. But of course, there's clear indications that there are Chinese companies willing and, and able to, to step in and fill that gap and provide that technology. But it's a question of the extent to which, given African government is interested in setting up that level of control and sadly the fact of the matter of is of it is that there are a number of governments across the continent that are clearly very keen to have that sort of control so provide a real opportunity for china to export some of those ideas and indeed add some more allies uh, worldwide to its push for for it for that digital that internet sovereignty that you referred to now that we gained some insight into this relationship between China and Africa on a technological level, would you say that it is beneficial for both sides, like a win-win relationship that China likes to advertise? Or is it a one-way road for Chinese gains, like the West sometimes portrays it? Well, yes, as I think we've seen with some of the topics that we've spoken about today, there's is a definitely a mixture of pros and cons. We've seen some of those positive things like Chinese companies building and setting up telecommunications and internet infrastructure. So so quite simply establishing connections that just wouldn't be there otherwise would be much more expensive with other suppliers. Uh, we've seen obviously the example of Transion and the and the consumer electronics they're providing. But we've seen also the flip side with the more negative aspects such as the risks of, of espionage and greater government control control. So yes, it definitely is a mixed picture, but I think it's really important that we continue to follow this story and and have a a proper, well-informed, nuanced understanding of what is going on in both positive and the negative dimensions. Tom Bays, thank you very much for joining the Merrick's podcast. I think you gave a great insight uh, and a starting point to get this more nuanced pictures we just talked about. Uh, Thank you, Hannes. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Tom Bass. The publication mentioned at the beginning of the podcast is China's Digital Rise Challenges for Europe and can be found on our website. I am Johannes Heller and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Merrick's Experts. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.